Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. All right, well, good morning, Heights family here in person, all of you joining us online. What a great morning of worship, wasn't it? Golly, lift your soul. They've got us all prepared now to hear that life is absolutely meaningless. I'm like, really, seriously, that's not a joke. That's where I'm going today. Life, life is absolutely meaningless. No, that, that's not my conclusion. That, that's not the conclusion of the church. But boy, it is the conclusion of somebody kind of important. Look up here. No kidding. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Ecclesiastes, probably not one of the most read books in the Bible, but a really great book of the Bible, a short book of the Bible. I think maybe after today, you might want to go and read it. It'd take you 15 minutes. I I don't even know if it'd take that long. You'll find it Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. But the book begins with a conclusion. You see it there. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. That's kind of a bold statement to make, isn't it? Can somebody really say, I've, I've seen everything? I, I've seen everything that can be done under the sun. Well, he's saying it, and behold, all, all of it, everything you did this past week, everything you're going to do in the coming week, maybe you laughed, maybe you cried, maybe it broke you, maybe you prospered you. doesn't really matter at the end, it's all vanity. You're just, you're just chasing the wind. And guess what you got when you catch it? Nothing. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. That is the conclusion of what could be suggested is the wisest person that ever lived. And that person is Solomon. And you know, he didn't say that at the end of a bad day. He didn't say that after a failed marriage or a, 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 a failed business. He, did, he didn't even say that after a bad life. No, actually, Solomon set out to very intentionally, very purposely, I would say in a very scientific way, put to the test all of the things that you and I, all of the same things that people then, 3,000 years ago, put their hand to, to try to find life, love, meaning, purpose, to try to find the things that say, I count, I, I mean something. And, and Solomon, he had, well, he had, a pretty good, he had a pretty good load of cash on him, like wealthiest person that ever lived. Some might say he was a, an Elon Musk type wealthy. Actually, it'd probably be better to say Elon Musk was a Solomon type of wealthy. Solomon's the richest person that ever lived. And, you know, if you got money to blow, you can try a lot of things, can't you? He had money, he had authority, he had freedom and power. So he could go down a lot of roads. He, he could do a lot of research projects. And if you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you actually see a catalog of all of the things that he tried. And again, you remember that statement, I've seen everything? Actually, again, that's a, that's a big, bold statement to make. But when you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you look at each one of those words as a, as a category, and, and all that would come out under that category, you, you start to think, boy, he really, he might have actually tried everything. And you see the list there. It was, it was sex, substance abuse, 
making money, spending money, accumulating, building. He got into the academics, the research, the science. I mean, he he did it all. And when he comes to the end of all that, all the research laid out, he he comes to that conclusion. It's, It's all empty and it's all meaningless. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying, okay? I'm, I'm confident. I have no doubt that while he was doing this research, he had some fun. I have no doubt that he, when he was doing this research, he learned some things. He fixed some things. He made some things better for you and me, for himself, for humanity. There was a lot of good that came out of it. But when he stepped back, when it was all said and done, and that's true for everybody in here. We all have a moment, hey, where we've, we've made, we've achieved, we've accomplished, but sooner or later, we're just kind of left with nothing but our own soul. And what is this I've done? What, what, is, what does this mean? What, what, what difference does this make? And he comes to that conclusion. It, it doesn't make any difference at all. You know, folks, with all he advanced, gosh, think of where we are now 3,000 years later. I don't know how far he moved the ball when, when in his lifetime, but think, gosh, I mean, we've got smartphones and we've walked on the moon and we can open up the human body and fix organs and sew it back together and send you home walking. But have we advanced since Solomon made that statement? Has any aspect of the human struggle actually been fixed? That's where he comes out and says, hey, we're going to make a lot. We're going to lose a lot. We're going to be happy. We're going to be sad. Hey, you know what I found out? It doesn't really matter. We're in the same spot. So it's kind of a depressing, kind of a pessimistic outlook on life. And because of that, there's been no lack of people, students, scholars, who've looked at Ecclesiastes and wondered if it even belonged in the Bible. This just doesn't sound like what God is saying. This sound maybe even sounds like a contradiction to so much of what the rest of the Bible or God is saying. But folks, Solomon didn't bully his way into the Bible. God put Solomon there. God put this research project there for you and me. So we have to ask why. Why does God want me interacting with such a negative message? And the key to understanding Ecclesiastes is really just three words. Under the sun. You, you heard those three words in that line a moment ago, right? I've seen everything done under the sun. And you're going to hear that phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. And remember, I just said a moment ago, 15 minutes to read. It is a short book in the Bible. And yet, in those 15 minutes, you will hear, listen to this, 29 times that phrase, under the sun. Over and over and over, Solomon, everything he's looking at, saying it's under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. That is the context by which he's saying what he's saying. And it's very simple. If you're trying to accomplish life, if you're trying to live life, if you're trying to achieve life entirely on the horizontal, no no vertical connection, no relationship to what is above the sun, then I'm here to tell you because I've been down every road, it doesn't matter how much you laugh, how much you cry, how much you make, how much you spend, what you do, what you accomplish, you'll end up at the same dead end that I found. You will end up 
broken. It's actually a very profound, and I might add a very scientific way of saying life is absolutely meaningless apart from God. Now, wisdom would suggest that you and I look at the research. Okay, I'm trying to figure out what road to go down this week. Okay, well, I I don't need to go down that road. I see where that ended for Solomon. Well, I don't need to go down that road. And we would learn from his research project, and we wouldn't take all those wrong roads, right? I started by saying, since we're so wise, and we're not, because we know better than Solomon. You are, as you know, smarter than the wisest person who ever lived. And so I, I don't really need to take in Solomon's research because it's, it's going to work for me. Yeah, It's going to make a difference in my life, and, and yet it really won't. You'll, you'll crash just like he did. You'll end up on the same dead end that he did. Think about this. Has anybody proved Solomon wrong in 3,000 years? Who are the people you would point to and say, well, clearly this is wrong because look at Look at who? Look at, look at what? what? What have they proved? You know, uh, Solomon, I said a moment ago, very wealthy, so he, he had a chance to try a lot of things. I actually think that the American life, the American culture, has, has some similarities to Solomon. We are, are very wealthy. We have freedom. We have a, a, a lot of opportunity. Now, when I say we're very wealthy, no, not like Elon Musk or like Solomon, But do you know the one in here that's struggling the most financially that is just right there on broke probably are caring more than about 90% of humanity's ever had. So as a culture, we really can go down a lot of roads. Just like Solomon, we can try a lot of different things. You know, another way that we're like Solomon is we, we used to have a relationship with God. Now, that's a, that's a tricky statement, used to have. That implies that America, a nation, had a relationship with God, but now does not have a relationship with God. I would imagine I would get some level of agreement in that, but that's still a tricky thing to understand. You know, the idea that America has been, is, was, still is a Christian nation, well, that gets a lot of debate going, gets some very heartfelt passion going in that. And I guess it kind of depends on how you define what it means to be a, a Christian nation. You know, we, I think we have somewhat of a romantic view of our history. We look back and I, I think, don't we, you know, the pilgrims came over and boy, everybody in America loved Jesus. Everybody walked with Jesus. Everybody went to church and worshiped and served Jesus. That's, that's not actually true. It's It's not even close to being true. Do you know there's never been a time in American history where even half of the population went to church? Never in American history has half the population gone to church. And you and I both know that even the half that goes to church, they're not all genuine followers of Christ, are they? So if that's, you know, a a, a metric by which we would say we are or not a Christian nation, well, no, we're probably not. But then there's the part that we kind of, well, no, we really are. We, we did have a leadership. We did have a beginning. And I'm not even referring to whether a specific individual was a believer or not. We did have a beginning that was very devoted to developing a culture based on a biblical morality. 
based on a biblical ethic. And we built a culture along that lines. And I think received some blessing because of that. And as a culture, we have rebelled and rejected against that biblical morality and that biblical ethic. And so when I would say, like Solomon, we, we tasted and saw that the Lord was God and then we vomited it back. We threw it back in his face and we walked away. Solomon had that. You know, Solomon, I, I always think of Solomon, he's the guy that got the golden ticket. God came to Solomon and said, what do, you, what do you want? I'll give it to you. I mean, who gets that opportunity? Solomon. And Solomon gave such a good answer that God said, not only am I going to give you what you asked for, I'm going to give you everything that you could have asked for. That's the kind of relationship Solomon had with God. That was his experience with God, and yet he vomited it back and walked away from all of it. You said, well, why did he do that? If I was to pick one word, it'd be sex. Run over to 1 Kings chapter 11. Look at the first two, three, four verses. And I think you'll see there that for sex, he abandoned God. It's a, that's a tricky topic, isn't it? Such an incredible blessing from the Lord to be enjoyed and experienced between one man and one woman in marriage, only one man, only one woman in marriage. You know, even inside the church, I think so often we think that's really just a statement for teenagers. No, it's one man and one woman in marriage, before marriage, during marriage, and after marriage. Not just, not just an issue of being a virgin. That, that's not all that's being addressed there. It's one man, one woman inside of marriage. And boy, the moment we step out of that, things start to break. Do you know where the things start to break? Inside of you. The very reasons you're doing that, are, are your, those are the very things that are going to be breaking inside of you. So we have this incredible gift from God, but we know we can take this on better than what God has for us. We, we've got a better plan there, and so we walk away from God. And I think you see in our culture, why have we walked away from a biblical morality? Because we want sex, and we want it in all kinds of ways, and we want it in every perverted way, and we don't want anyone, anything telling us no Period. And for that, we'll walk away. Solomon did not finish life in a good place. But he did finish his research project. He, he did come to the end. He's got, all, he's got it all laid out on the table. All the areas of life, all of the things that we run after and build and do and seek and try. He's got it all laid out. And he concludes with this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says, the end of the matter, the end of my project, the end of my research, after everything's been heard, read, studied, pursued, when you look at everything, here's what I've come down to. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's, that's the whole duty. Don't be confused by the word duty, like that, that's a law. or something. Hey, l- listen, that, that's, do what you want, go where you want, try what you want. The only thing that's going to really work is fearing God and obeying his commands. You expect to hear that in church, right? You expect to hear a religious person say, understand that's not somebody in love with God who wrote that. 
That's not somebody walking with God who wrote that. That's somebody just making an observation after life. So you got two key words there, fear and commands. Fear and obey. Boy, those are two great words to carry to the American culture, right? Hey, y'all looking for the answers? Try fear and obey. I can't think of two words that would be more negative in our culture than those two words. Because both of those words go to one other word, authority. And we hate authority in America. You do realize, as a culture, we despise authority. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what I can and cannot do. I can do what I want, and I don't even need to care what you think because nobody has authority over me. Now, we all have places we have to endure authority, right? And that's what we do. We endure it. We put up with it. But make no mistake, we hate authority. So there, we, I can't imagine there's any real answer, there's any real life, that there's anything I want inside the word obey and fear. And by the way, that word fear always throws us off a little bit. In our vernacular, we'd use the word awe. Be in awe of, what does it mean to be in fear of God? It means to be in awe of God. So in awe of him, it shapes every word out of my mouth. So in awe of him, it shapes what I do and what I don't do. Not a lot of the time, not on Sunday, every moment of my life. Be in awe of God. Be so in awe of God that you obey God. Now again, these are challenging words. Be in awe, fear, obey. You know, if we were to do a study, I could do this this morning. I'm not, but I'm just going to tell you. If we were to do a study in the Old and New Testament of those words, fear, obey, and obey, there is a third word you'd always find attached because they all go hand in hand. And that's not a word that we're expecting. It's the word love. This is about love. That's what this is about. Maybe the most succinct statement to prove what I just said would be what Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, you will obey my commandments. They, they go hand in hand. Now, let, let's think about that. I mean, we, we, I think a lot of us know the great commandment is to love, love God. Okay, so I'm going to love God. I've got a command to love God. You know, there's not many places. I don't know that there's any places I can go in my life, any kind of relationship, any kind of scenario where I could walk in the room and say, you need to love me, where that wouldn't sound self-serving. Doesn't it? Hey, you, you need to love me. Now, there might be some places where we think, well, I mean, it's, it's not inappropriate to say that, like, like in our marriage or in parenting. Hey, you, you need to love me. But even if there's an appropriateness to saying that in that relationship, it still sounds self-serving. It still sounds, hey, you've got something and I need it. You need to give this to me. You need to do this for me. And the reason we hear it that way is because Under the sun, we're selfish. And we've never had a relationship ever that is not touched by selfishness. I mean, I think we all like to think that in in certain relationships, we're we're growing and we're loving and we're serving and we're sacrificing. And we we do that more and more and we do that better and better. You, You do listen to what's going on in your head, don't you? And you know as well as I do, with the person that you love the most, you're self-centered. 
well, not more than once a week. <laughs> You're not listening, are you? <laughs> try, try once an hour. That's in our best relationships. So because selfishness is our constant and ongoing experience with love under the sun, then we hear about God's love, God's love for us or us to love God, we cannot help but attach some level of selfishness to this. So what's God up to? Why, why does he need my love? Why, does, why is God making me love him? But unlike you and me, God already exists in the perfect relationship. The trinity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in, in perfection, they love and serve each other. In perfection, they fellowship. In that relationship, there is the zenith of satisfaction and fulfillment. There is absolutely no need in God that drives him to say, you need to love me. That's not what drives the command. It is God's grace, it is God's kindness, it is God's goodness that as you and I, he knows we're heading out into the world and we're going to run down all kinds of roads looking and he says, hey, love me. Well, how is that for my benefit? And God would say, because I created your soul. I made you emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. I made you and I designed you to love me. Well, now, wait a minute. That still sounds a little self-serving. Sounds like you made a bunch of pets. Sounds like you made a bunch bunch of robots. Why would you make me to love you? And he gives us freedom in that. So we're not little pets and we're not little robots. But he did design us. Why would it be God's love that would design us to love him? Because in this universe, God is light, and God is life, and God is truth, and God is purity, and God is beauty. What more loving thing could he do than to create, to design your soul to be attracted to that? If he doesn't create you to be attracted to him, then he's creating you to be attracted to darkness and deceit and death. It's absolutely the most loving thing God could do would be to design my soul to love him. And we want to. We start out that way. But then Satan shows up. And he deceives us. He tricks us into believing that, you know, okay, there's God. But to get to God, there's all these commands. And behind those commands is what you're really looking for. Behind those commands is real life. God's keeping you from that. Those commands are a restriction on you. Those commands are an oppression in your life. Wait, did Satan really say all that? Well, let's see. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter... Don't you love when a Bible verse is in Genesis? Gosh, it's just so easy to find. Thank God for Genesis and Revelation. Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible, first page or two of the Bible. So Adam and Eve are living in this perfect world with God and enters Satan. And they don't have a lot of commands at this point. They just have a couple of commands. And listen to how Satan deals with these commands. Right there in the middle of 
verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now, I don't, I don't know how you picture Satan coming to tempt you, to, to get you. I, I think probably sometimes we wrongly think of, you know, he's on fire and his hair's all wild and he's got a pitchfork and he's got horns and he's really horrific, scary. And he's, he's saying, don't obey God, don't obey God. But what he does is he shows up and says, hey, did, did God really say? All he does is pose a question. He doesn't imply an answer. He just imposes a question. Folks, think about it. This is, this is the beginning of time. This is the beginning of humanity. And Satan is operating the exact same way today. Think about the American culture. And I'm, this happens all over the world. But in our culture, when we're debating the Bible, rejecting the Bible, fighting the Bible, think of the question that we have. Can we really know God spoke? Can we really know this is God's word? Now, I know you religious folks, you need a holy book, right? And so that's what you want to believe. You want to believe this is, this is God's word. You want to believe. But, I mean, hey, news for you, every religion has a holy book. So can we really know that God spoke? And even if you want to believe this is God's word, how, how can we know what it means? There's so many interpretations. And boy, so much of the church hears that phrase. There's so many interpretations and we go, oh no, they found out. Why do we take that? Why do we let the world, what, did God really speak? There's so many interpretations. No, there's not. The next time somebody says to you, there's so many interpretations, look them back and say, no, there's not. I'll wait a moment if you want to write that down. That can be hard to remember. <laughs> and, 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 they're going to, and you know what they're going to say? Uh-huh. And you say, okay, well, you tell me. Thou shalt not lie. How many different ways have you heard to interpret that? And thou shalt not steal. Go ahead. I'm waiting. How many different ways are there to interpret that? You know, folks, I know what people mean when they say there's a lot of, you know, we got the different denominations and over here they believe this and over there. And somewhere we've got it in our mind that they believe and we believe. There's, these, there's this massive gulf between what we believe and what they believe. First of all, some of our differences, and I'm not applauding the differences that we have in churches. But some of our differences, all of our differences, pretty minor in nature. And they don't change anything about who God is. They don't change anything about who we are, and they don't change anything about how we get to God and enjoy him forever. So there's just not a lot of, but, see, hey, can we really know? Now, Eve answers them, and she gives the right answer. She says, no, 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 no. And God didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. He said we couldn't eat from that tree or, or we'll die. And Satan responds, and he says, you won't. You won't die. Now, here's what I, here's why I kind of wish I was there. Because, you know, there's the words that we say, and then there's our facial expression, and then there's our tone of voice. So when he says, you didn't really die, did he say, you're not going to die? That's stupid. Okay, now, if he said that, I'd probably immediately be on my guard, right? Because this guy's clearly attacking my God in what he said. But what if Satan just said it like this? What if he said... You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you will. 
I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, but just honestly, I mean, let, can we just for a moment look around? I mean, look at this guy over here. He's stealing and he's lying. Doesn't look dead to me. As a matter of fact, he just got a promotion. And we all know the reason he got that promotion is because he stole and because he lied. Anybody seen that at work? Don't raise hands. Yeah, you know, David came to a... King David, guy who wrote books in the Bible, David, came to a crisis of faith because he said, Hey, God, you give us all these commands and they're supposed to be a benefit to our life. And honestly, I'm not getting any benefit. And I'm looking around from people who disobey you and they look just fine to me. They didn't die. And that's all Satan is posing. He's just throwing out a little idea that, you know, I don't, I don't think people are dying. Now, of course, physical death is. I don't, I don't know if anybody's looked around, but 100% of us die. Newsflash. But actually, the reference here is not to physical death. When God says, if you eat of that, you will die. It's to spiritual death. What's that mean? It means the part of me created designed to relate with God will die. And when that part of me dies, I am trapped at living under the sun. I am trapped in a life where it will not matter how much I laugh or how much I cry, how much I make or how much I lose. It's all meaningless because we all end up in the dirt. And that is 100% true. But Satan doesn't have to actually run the gamut on all this. He just has to throw out a question, throw out a little doubt. And now that he's got Eve set up, he does go in for the kill. And he says there in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He sets out there before humanity a philosophy, a way of thinking that says behind the commands, there's more. Behind the commands, there's better. And God's keeping you from what is more. God is keeping you from what is better. The commands are an oppression. The commands are a restriction. And boy, we buy it, don't we? Why why do you think there's a temptation to sin? Because we think there's more on the other side of the sin. The sin, not God, not his commands. The sin will help me achieve what I want to achieve. The sin will help me get to where I want to get. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't yell at us for our disobedience. He doesn't mock our disobedience. You know what he says? He says, hey, guys, my father loves you. My father so loves you that he sent me, his only begotten son, into the world to rescue you from what you're doing, to rescue you from the decisions you're making, rescuing you from this concept you have about commands and obedience so that you can live forever. As an obedient slave knows, you can live forever as a child of God in heaven with God. As a matter of fact, the Father sent me to pay for your disobedience. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to help you obey. Why do I need the Holy Spirit to help me obey? Is this this God trying to make me a little slave again? 
No, he's going to help me obey so I can in everything, every day, fully experience just how much God loves me and the life that he has for me. These commands, all the thou shalt not. Gosh, that sounds mean, doesn't it? Who told us that was mean? Satan. In every thou shalt not is God's great love for you. Not what he's holding back from you. Not what he's keeping from you. Not the secret to life that he's hiding from you. But all of his love and all of his heaven for you. So today is just an introduction to the rest of the series. (laughs) I felt like before we started a series on commands, we've got to get started with just how whacked up our whole concept of commands are. God's not angry. These aren't rules to keep you out of heaven. These aren't rules to see who gets into heaven. This is God's love. The most loving thing he can tell you is not to lie because when you do, it just starts to eat away at your own soul and it eats away at every single relationship you'll have where there's a lie. It's God's kindness, not his meanness, that tells us that. So we're going to spend three months studying commands. We're going to do this all the way to the end of July. Now, when I say commands, we're going to look starting next week at the great command, love God. Then the next week, the next great command, the second is like the first great, love others, love your neighbor. When we finish with that, then we're going to do a little bit deeper dive into the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are an elaboration on the two great commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments tell me how to love God. The next six tell me how to love my neighbor. And every command in this book falls under that category. It's helping me, showing me, pointing me to how to love God and how to love my neighbor. All the thou shalt not. It's about love. You ready to dive in with me? Man, let's, if we have one prayer, that God help me be more excited than ever before about your commands. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are holy and you are loving and you can't speak. You don't move in a way that can't be defined by loving and holy and good. And you are being loving and holy and good in each and every command. And you give those commands because you know us. You know our design mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. You know our enemy. You know the world In every single one of these commands, you're guiding us. You're showing us how to navigate where we live. Thank you. Thank you. And may it it be with gratitude and passion and love that, God, we each one approach this series and and begin to understand even fuller, even more, who you are and what you're saying in each of these commands, what each one of them can mean and will mean in each of our lives. Lord, I know as I pray, there's many within the sound of my voice who love you, who love your commands, who are growing in obedience to those commands. Lord, I I pray for all of us, wherever we are on the scale of obedience, that as we approach the end of July, we have all taken a step forward. And that we know better your love than we ever have before. 
God, would you answer that prayer in each of our lives individually? Would you answer that prayer for us as a family, as a church? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.